You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Andrew and David, and we're going to talk about how the adoption process has changed in the last 14 years. Hi to both of you. Hi. Hi. So, Andrew, you were one of the first adopters in the country, a same-sex couple adopters in the country, weren't you? Uh, yeah, in our county we were uh, the first to be approved, so um, we have been campaigning for a blue plaque, but <laughs> still haven't got it yet. Um, and so, we, yeah, we went through the process um, in the county. It was quite an interesting thing for us because having never approved LGBT adopters before, it was quite a long and uh, winding road to get there. So I'm just curious as to really see how the process has changed over all those years. Well, that's why it's very, very lucky that we have got David here as well, because David was just approved in October, weren't you? I was, yeah. So um, husband and I uh, were approved in October 2020. And I guess our agency was probably a little more well-versed, being quite a few years after um Andrew's adoption um and so they've even supported us in kind of our membership with New Family Social which has been really good. So that's interesting so, so David you obviously approached them quite recently and how were they what was the reception like that you got? Yeah it was very warm it was nice to kind of when we went to our training session in stage one we weren't the only same-sex couple, which was actually a, a surprising shock. Yeah, it was good. That Yeah, see, that seems weird to me because we were the only ones, and I certainly assumed that you were the only ones. Yeah, certainly. There wasn't any other uh, same-sex adopters at ours. And, and through the process, I don't think even in the journey that we had, there weren't many people going through it at that time. I mean, NFS was very tiny at that time, and there was maybe a handful of members. So... Yeah, it was a pioneering in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> How were you received when you applied all that time ago? Um, it was strange, I think, because I, I remember going to the introduction session and we were very much told that, um, I think the expectation at that time was that uh, LGBT adopters potentially took on children that no one else wanted. And there was certainly uh, quite a drive for children with additional needs or disabilities being the children that were placed with LGBT adopters. And we were very clear from the very beginning that that wasn't what we wanted in the process because um, my background is working in nursing and I work with children with additional needs and health requirements and didn't want to professionally come home from my job to have to do that as a parent and so we were very strict from the start which was I think a a new thing for them because I think there was still an ethos that you were going to be lucky to get children because you were gay adopters and you couldn't have children through other means other than IVF and not IVF sorry um uh, surrogacy surrogacy, sorry that's the word isn't it um so yeah I think it, it was going to be very much take what you're given and but but for you, um, David, did you did you feel any barriers at all? Did you feel anything was different for you, or did it feel like the process ran along as it would have done for a heterosexual couple? I think going through or our experience, going through the whole kind of assessment process, I don't feel like it was different. I think that that was really really positive. I think now we're in that kind of whole family finding and searching process we do have a bit of a feeling that there could be differences 
Um, and maybe that's kind of in the way some of the kind of uh, responses we're getting from the children's family finders. What are those responses like? Um, kind of reasons why um, they don't want to take us forward right now to kind of, there was a thing about us having direct contact with the foster carer long term, which is not something we would really want to do or, or commit to anyway. Um, and then another big one that keeps popping up a lot is about direct access to garden. Whilst we have outside space, you can't like just walk out the door and you're in it because we're in an apartment. So that, that's been quite interesting. I was just thinking that's quite interesting because uh, I've not really changed significantly because I remember family finding and having a number of uh, social workers say that they didn't feel comfortable with having uh, gay parents for this these children that they were specifically family finding for. Um, so it's, it's, it's disappointing in some ways to know that that's not really moved on significantly. And I, I sort of feel saddened that that's, that's the approach, bearing in mind how many LGBT adopters there are out there now, that they've still got that theory that having a mum and dad is the, the best option for these children. It could obviously just be our perception, you know, and that's not necessarily the reality. I think at the moment, there's an absolute ton of approved adopters. That's what we're being told. So it's kind of competition. If that, it's not a nice word to say, but competition because everybody is interested in these children and, and kind of the whole court process at the moment is quite delayed, we're finding. Um, in a lot of areas, obviously COVID-related. So when you first came uh, to adoption all that time ago, did it feel possible and did it feel like it would be fine? Did you feel self-confident about going forward to become parents that way? Because there must have been very few role models, few people who've done it. Yeah, I think it, it was an interesting time. I remember when we, had, my husband and I, had the conversation about having children and then he went to the local authority and that's when we had the introduction session and it, it felt very strange going through it and could this happen and it, it was most a mixture of sort of excitement and fear I think in some ways of like how was this process going to go through and, and and that's actually when we reached out to try and find other people in the process and at that point there, there were literally a handful of people going through it um and that that's sort of effectively how NFS was created because there, there was nowhere out there for LGBT people to go and talk about this process in, in sort of a secure uh, group. And it started off merely as an email group that we could uh, talk to each other directly without having to go through message boards and things like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's it, it was a very strange time and I, I, I there was no one to sort of talk through the process with us and to, for us to understand. And I think... One of the things that we were talking about earlier was uh, that the social workers made quite a thing at the time about um, intimacy and, and female role models and things like that, because they wanted to know as a male couple, if we were to adopt a child that was female, uh, how would we have, or any child actually, how would mm -hmm. we ensure that they had female influences? And I was curious to know whether that still exists in the panels, whether they, they asked that sort of question, because I think... It's a really difficult question. And actually, if you were a single adopter, irrespective of your sexuality, you wouldn't expect someone to sort of go around and sort of say, what role models have you got to ensure that these children? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say in some ways, and we might have been helped in the way uh, our, our kind of referees, it's quite female heavy and probably 100% female heavy. So we kind of have got that covered from that angle. So I don't know whether um, that would have been uh, something that was raised. But yeah, so kind of we use my mum and my sister and then a friend, all female, all kind of had some either direct like visual levels kind of interacting with children or they have some kind of relevance. So being school teachers and um, my friend is uh, a counsellor as well. So lots of kind of relevance and and the, there was a big focus on kind of our support network because what we were going to do, we just really needed some support, not necessarily not necessarily just that physical, please come and support us, but more the kind of emotional support. Um, so I think bringing those people into the mix for us and coincidentally all female um, just helped um, support our case because we knew we could go to someone for that support if needed. That's a good strategy, that. I think everyone <laughs> should adopt that, that, yeah, you can demonstrate your own model. So that's really good. <laughs> David, I think it's really interesting that the rejections that you've had in terms of being matched with children, it's raising that question in your mind about, is this a gay thing? And I can relate to that a lot because I think we do go in expecting discrimination. And we know from a survey that we did of new family social members that half of people go in expecting discrimination. So I wonder how you're coping with that and how you're coping with that sort of nagging question in the back of your mind, really. For me, I think it's kind of drawing on kind of earlier life experience myself and I do wonder myself if that kind of jump into that conclusion maybe is some kind of you know triggers from early experience you know I think of a certain age I'm 40 something and I think growing up there's a lot of bullying that maybe is not as as bad or severe now for kind of people of younger generations so I think for me it's that jumping back to that but then thinking well you know I did make it through that and I kind of found resilience to kind of yeah develop I guess and not be kind of held back by that so I think it's for me there's that but also relying on one another with you know with my husband Roger um, and I just kind of supporting one another um, and I'm being open. I, I'm quite vocal anyway of like <laughs> how I'm feeling <laughs> and I will tell him and he's starting to do that more and more now. So, and I, I think that's kind of a positive way to deal with it because I find if I keep it in my mind, then it'll just kind of fester and fester. So actually talking and supporting one another um, has helped us kind of develop through uh, kind of progress through that and not get too bogged down it's a weird time family finding isn't it because your life's just on hold you can't plan anything do anything you're just waiting any day now could be the day and then it isn't but tomorrow could be and it just I, I find myself going crazy I found it really hard yeah I, the one thing I was always thinking was the resilience would come or needed to be there once you were kind of placed with children but actually this this kind of stage in the whole process is probably 
really, really difficult because our experience in stage one and two, you were very active, you were very uh, involved in doing things, whether it's, you know, conversations with your social worker each week or fortnight, um, preparing for those and, you know, filling in questionnaires and, and sorting your references out. And now it's kind of like, you will go on LinkMaker and you'll look and you'll make, you know, you register your interests, but then you sit in there and you're waiting. So that that's quite tough. And that's why coming to camp has again been another real positive because we're doing something like we're getting ourselves ready uh, in a way and I'm giving back as well. Yeah, I mean, we ought to say that we're recording this at summer camp. It's our first actual face-to-face podcast. We're doing it in a tiny sort of cabin thing that we found at the side of the campsite, overlooked by Her Majesty the Queen and Lord baden Powell. So, <laughs> so it's a bit of an unusual one. Um, so, and so, Andrew, going back to when, when you were family finding and really that part of the process, did you experience any full-on discrimination or fully expressed discrimination? Or did you have any of those sort of doubts I think at the time, actually, we had some full-on discrimination. I think there was there was a couple of children that at the time we... <laughs> it's moved on, obviously, now, and having LinkMaker and things like that and more of the internet and, and uh, access to children's profiles that way. There's, there's sort of more out there. At the time, when, when we were going through the process, um, there was only uh, either the social worker getting sent uh, emails with children's profiles on or you had one of the magazines that the two sort of adoption chat I think for children wait and I can't remember the other one now and and they would be sent through to you and and they were very sort of emotive pieces of uh, literature that you see these lovely pictures of children and you you sort of feel you can almost start to feel attachments to all these children you sort of think oh that one's great that one's great that one's great and there was a few profiles that we identified um and and our social worker came back. She was very good and she was very honest about the process and actually said to us uh, the, what feedback we were getting. And, and there were a couple of cases where uh, the, there was um, uh, two children that we were looking at, sibling pair, and they said, no, the parents are Catholic. They would never approve of uh, gay adopters. And I, I felt really disappointed by that as well because I sort of thought, well, by going through the process and, and them not being able to parent their own children uh, and having legally having that taken away from them, why have they got such a say in this process? Surely if it's right for the children and they were older children who were going to be in the difficult to place sort of category, but that's what we were looking for. We didn't want a baby. We wanted a child who was going to fit in with our family demographic. So we were looking for someone five and up, which is sort of in the, that difficult bracket already. And I've, I sort of didn't understand that at the, at the time. And there was, I remember it's certainly just two children, another sibling pair that we were looking at, and in that circumstance, the the child's mother was actually um, going through some sexuality issues herself and, and not knowing her identity and all sorts of issues. And they felt that the children being adopted by two men would be too confusing for her. And again, I, I, I sort of felt, why, why has it got such a relevance? But I, I understand the process now, having, having two wonderful boys now ourselves, I, I'm fully happy with the... The, the process that happened and we have the family that we have it's great um but yeah at the time I remember going through that process the excitement and anxiety raises at each various stage you go to and then the family finding I think is like the, the climate of it isn't it because you're there and you're sort of on the brink of being a parent but it still seems to be at that end point that you can't see clearly 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that when you, because I've had, I've given birth to children as well. And when you do, you know, you can picture a bit what will arrive at the end. It will be a baby and it will be one baby. And you know that you get some warning. But on this, it could be one, could be two, could be a boy, could be a girl, could be age four, could be age two. And you can't really picture it. It's really, really hard to imagine what your life's going to be like. Have you made um, any preparations, David? So preparations wise, physically nothing. We have a second bedroom and that's our spare bedroom. But right now, nothing. So we're, we're approved for not to three. We're completely open, whether it's boy or girl. Um, not to say that I would do the whole blue and pink thing um, in the bedroom, but not to three is massively yeah. different. Different, You know, is it a cot? <laughs> you know, where we're getting preparation for a bed. So really we're, we're just waiting now um, until we get to that kind of real like matching stage and then we will do some physical preparations aside from that though we're, we're doing a lot of reading um, so I think anyone going through this process will probably have heard therapeutic parenting popping up um, a lot I think as we're reading more and more profiles we're kind of seeing a lot where kind of you know that most children have come from difficult circumstances there's absolutely going to be some trauma uh even if it's not what you may think in your mind as being really traumatic but they still will have been taken away from their parents so that in itself is a trauma and 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 that might make it difficult kind of in the whole attachment and, and then might portray in different behaviours. So, yeah, we're doing a lot of reading around therapeutic parenting. And and it's interesting, I guess, looking at other parents, like there's a different style of parenting. But one of our referees, interestingly, therapeutically parents, didn't actually realise that's what she was doing. Um, it was just her different way of kind of doing it rather than doing the whole chastising and uh, naughty corner and all those kind of things. Yeah, she was she was naturally doing it. So again, it was another <laughs> good person in our corner because as we will parent differently, it's good to know there's someone there who actually understands without us explaining. So. Yeah, with that's our kind of preparations. I think just a tip in preparation for parenthood, just put your washing machine on every day and throw a bag of toys across the lounge floor. <laughs> that's probably <laughs> the best thing that you could do. <laughs> and so you're obviously, you know, one of your children is much older now. And so looking back across that, what, was it what you expected? Has it been different to what you expected? Uh, hugely different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think... <laughs> the therapeutic parenting, I think, it, it's, it's certainly something that I think we have learned later on down the line. And we've been very fortunate um, over the years because there have been a lot of challenges with parenting. Um, our oldest son was uh, six when he came to live with us. And I think we never, un until we adopted again, which was his sibling, uh, nine years later, we had no benchmark as to what is uh, a, a normal behavior and what is uh, a behavior that's related to the trauma and the adoption things like that so sometimes what you think is uh, adoption related you actually chat to parents at the school gate and you find out that 
all the children are doing that. And actually it's not. So your anxiety is quite high from that point. You're permanently trying to look to see if there's something that is an issue. And, and you make sometimes issues out of things which aren't issues, but also you ignore things. And, and looking back now, we can see that there were issues with our older son that we had no awareness of, that they were actually signs of trauma and attachment and behavioural issues, which later on in life we've had a lot of support with. And that's the one nice thing I think about adoption over over birth parenting. Like I, I get the my colleagues at work saying, you're quite fortunate, you can go to this resource and say, I need some help. And I don't know what to do do with this situation. I'm, I'm not dealing with this very well, or I, we, we're just struggling at the moment. And they there are resources out there that they can put into place. If if you've got birth children, my colleagues at work sometimes turn around to me and say, "Ask me what we're doing because we we're doing various strategies." We were fortunate to have some training in something called nonviolent resistance, which was very useful for our old child when he started to develop sort of behaviours that we were really, really struggling to deal with. Um, and it was aggression and violence towards us. And they put in a lot of work with us and that really worked for him. And I'm not saying that's the, the, the hard and fast rule for everyone, but in our circumstance, that was the greatest thing that they could have done. So having that expectation and having that resource there for you has always been really useful. So I think, yeah, we were never quite prepared for what we got in the end and what happened in our life. But actually, as much as it traumatizes people to hear those stories and, and actually um, talk about that, I still wouldn't change it for a day because our older son is really nice. He's lovely. And if you ever meet him, he's actually a wonderful child. And he, but he just has issues in the background that he has trouble processing and he still has processing issues now and he will have it into his adulthood, I think. Or anyway, he will have it into adulthood. So I think he's always going to have that degree of support. And what's nice when you adopt is that that support is out there into adulthood and he still gets support now. Even though he is now technically an adult, he has support from social services, not the adoption teams, but actually he's got uh, support workers and things to help him with his decision processes. And uh, Andrew, you're saying that one of the things that, because I've been on the edge of your story, I guess, and known you as a family and stuff, and it gives me a lot of reassurance because um, our child displays some some evidence of, you know, what his early life was like and so on. But I sort of look at that and I see, I mean, obviously, I don't know how hard it was at 3am on some of the mornings, you know, I wasn't there then, but um, the I, it seemed you've survived some big challenges I saw what support you went and got and that some of that really worked. And some of that's really reassuring because I think sometimes you almost don't want to look at the difficult stories for fear. What if that's us? What if we tempt fate? What if one of those kids who's really struggling is the kid that I end up with? And it becomes a bit scary. So you sort of bury it and go, I'm sure our one will be absolutely fine. Um, but actually sort of being on the edge of seeing you go through that makes me think, do you know what? If, if on the roll of the dice, our child struggles in their teens and stuff, there are some strategies. And also, I'll be around at yours for a cup of tea, go look after me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just just seeing other people tread that path, I think, is is potentially really reassuring, albeit that I know it was really hard at points. I think that's the thing. I think um, there's a lot that we weren't aware of and there's a lot that we missed as parents. And and, and I, I'm the first to put my hands up and say, I have made some huge parenting mis mistakes in <laughs> over the years hmm. um, and, and have been through... Uh, all sorts of processes with social services and things because of the the sort of behaviors that we had in the house and it was it was a, a real sort of tumultuous time for us but actually as you say i think it sort of helped us in some ways because we have become much more proactive with um his sibling in the sense of that it's 
the behaviors are nowhere near where we were before, but actually um, we've been much uh, quicker at going back to social services and saying, look, hold on a second. I think there's something that we should maybe start taking some action on here. And, and if that's one thing that I found with uh, friends of ours who've also gone back through the adoption process earlier, is that actually social services are there to support you. And I know there's the bureaucracy and I know there's always all the financial issues, but actually going back to them and saying, I'm struggling. I don't understand how to do this. There are resources out there. There's money out there for you. You just have to be the advocate for it. And NFS is very good from that viewpoint that there are so many stories out there and there's such a, a rainbow of families that we have with experiences, good, bad, indifferent, that there's someone there who's possibly done it before you, which is a lovely thing. And not to know that you're not alone as a parent when you're not alone to have gone through this and the challenging times and the the crying at three o'clock in the morning and the sort of I hate my child and that whole pressure that you put on it because I think very early on when you're going through the adoption process I think one of the big things that I felt was am I going to love this child how am I how am I going to love this child because it's not my child as such at the very beginning and then you feel a lot of pressure to I've got to love them I've got to love them and if they are challenging you still got that. I still got to love you, even though I'm not liking you at the moment. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like about that peer support from from you, Family Social. I remember um, one of the years at camp, there was a child who had a massive meltdown, um, and the child was really struggling and really traumatized, and it went on for some significant period. And the child's parents were really struggling. They'd obviously sort of reached a moment where they just weren't able to cope. And what I really liked about it was that if, you know, if that happens in Tesco's, you are tutted at and talked about and scowled at. Whereas that happening at camp, everyone mucked in and, and sorted it out. Everyone went and got the parents a cup of tea, you know, lots of hugs all around. And it was it was a really nice, it just felt really safe place to be struggling in that way. And, you know, people checked in on them afterwards. And I, I really liked that. And again, felt, you know, sometimes when we're here, if something kicks off that's adoption related, or, you know, if the child does something that's just, I don't know, a bit challenging, we all understand that we're all doing our best and it's not necessarily reflecting on something we've done wrong or not done. It is how it is. This is how this sort of parenting is. I think just the other thing about being here, which is lovely, is you never feel judged, as you said, by the children's behaviours. But also, just as a gay parent, it's lovely to go and know our children find it nice because... They remember the first few camps that we ran and they came to would be they would walk up and go they've got two dads this child's got two mums yes. <laughs> because certainly where we live there's not many gay families uh, or lgbt adoption foster carers uh, so my children are in the minority in school so uh, but their school is incredibly accepting and all the other children know that he, he has two dads um, and no one ever thinks anything of it. None of the children think anything of it. But here in camp, that's one of the things that the kids, when they're running around, they're able to talk about their two dads, two mums, their mum, whatever, whatever their grown-up is that's with them, to feel quite comfortable in doing that. I'm, I'm just picking up on you kind of saying about coming to camp, like how things, I guess, are progressing. So visibility locally, two floors above us, two gay dads have just brought their son home 
four nice. weeks ago. So it's kind of like, it's just amazing that we're kind of going to be able to make those connections, but also that is going to be when we bring our child home in the future, there's going to be visibility there of different families. You know, there are kind of families with birth children where we're living, but then this new family, I guess we're lucky we're in a big city and it's quite because we're Polarton and there's lots of kind of uh, people around. So it makes it, I guess, there's a bigger pool um, of people. Just just when you were saying that, just interesting, going back to the process, I know you said when you went through your training, there were other LGBT adopters on the course. Did you manage to make any uh, links during that during the adoption process or going through the paperwork that helped you? Because I think that was one of the big things that we found was there was no one out there. So that's why we had to reach out to see. And we made links with people, but there was no one in our locality. We were talking to people in London and Birmingham and places like that. Um, yeah, so we did, uh, yeah, WhatsApp probably didn't exist in uh, <laughs> your <right>. adoption <laughs> times. Well, that old. Oh, wow. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> little dig. Write, write it on a scroll on parchment, roll it up, put it on a pigeon. <laughs> so, yes, we benefited from WhatsApp. So we got a little group um, and we do still stay in touch with some of those um other prospective adopters um probably not as much as we could do but um there is one couple uh, and they, they've got two little girls now so and we keep in touch with them also i mean yeah we've benefited from new family social from the evening kind of catch-ups that sometimes happens so join one of one of the new family social staff and it was just a, an opportunity to kind of chat without kind of being concerned about what we were saying too much you know we could be open um and and we've continued then now to stay in touch with uh same-sex couple kind of offline from that also on whatsapp oh and instagram as well <laughs> what's instagram <laughs> um so yeah so we've been kind of following their journey so we, when we first met them they'd been approved but now they've also got a brother and sister sibling group um who've moved in with them and yeah it's just been nice um to watch that but also giving us confidence and that kind of hope for the future that whilst yeah it is quite a long process we feel we're going through in that matching you know we, we know it's going to happen at some point yeah it definitely will one of the volunteers at camp said to me um it's the first time i've ever been myself in front of children and i thought that to this time and i thought that was really moving because i think we are all taught or at least going back we were all taught that our sexual orientation or gender identity represents the risks for children and that we are risks to children and i do think that drip drip of negative stuff does go in so to hear one of the volunteers even now in 2021 saying mm. It's the first time I've ever been myself in front of kids. It's, it's quite moving, I think. I think one thing that I like, particularly about the camp and all the people that we have coming to it, is it's nice to see them again and again in different parts of the journey. So when you are finally placed with children and have a family, we hope you would come back here and then we can see your journey yeah. as much as we've seen a lot of them. And it's nice to see previous volunteers and staff and uh, 
just um, campers in general coming back with expanding families and coming each year and seeing how the children have grown, how they're getting on and swapping those stories. It's it's like returning home sometimes. My children, when they uh, come to camp every year, they meet their friend and it's like they have never been apart when actually it's been 12 months since they might have seen some of these children and they get together like it was yesterday. Yes. Well, our two sons have made a best friends forever flag, haven't they? Absolutely. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> in that case, thank you so much. I can see that everything's changed a lot over the years and let's hope the change in this direction continues. And uh, David, obviously you will get your child or children and bring them back to camp very definitely. We definitely will do. <laughs> I'd like to thank my guests today, Andrew and David. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea. Thank you. Thank you.